Well, I have the, uh, the privilege uh, to introduce to you um, an amazing man. Um, someone that, that I love very dearly. And um, we, we had an opportunity just to connect last night and just spend some time together. And I'll tell you, this, this guy, um, he just has such a heart. Uh, he has the heart of God in him. And so he just, he, and it just exudes from him. Uh, so you will be blessed tonight. But um, uh, I want to tell you, it's, it's funny, not funny, it's interesting that, uh, 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 that Floyd McClung, he's actually my great spiritual grandfather, and he is uh, my dad's spiritual grandfather. Um, so uh, if you know uh, John Hunter, who comes here every so often, he actually, uh, we went out to, um, not Amsterdam, it was in uh, uh, Afghanistan, and that's where John Hunter was, uh, was saved. He spent a lot of time with, uh, with Floyd, and then uh, John Hunter came back and met with my dad, and that's how my dad was saved, and then obviously... Uh, I was saved because of my dad. Um, so, it, it, pretty cool story, but uh, uh, I, won't, I won't go into any more, but I want to bring up uh, Floyd McClung, who's awesome. <laughs> also, we will have buckets in the back. You know, Floyd, Floyd and Sally, they live uh, in, uh, in South Africa. They're down in Cape Town and, and doing an awesome work. They're doing a... Uh, they, they, they raise up pastors down there. They're, they're doing church planning. They're doing leadership training uh, down in, in South Africa. And I'm sure he'll tell you about it. But we're going to have buckets in the back. And so we would love to bless them as much as possible. So uh, if you feel like uh, that you want to bless them, please make the checks out to The Rock and put it in the back. And, and all the funds will go to, to bless uh, Floyd and the ministry that they're doing in South Africa. Thank you. Good evening. How are you? Great. I love Jesus. How about you? I love Jesus. I love Sally, my wife. We've been married 47 years, 11 months, and 29 days. Where's Sally? Sally's been in the back by the table. I'm going to show a little video clip with Sally in a few minutes. If you want to go by, we have a book table and you can meet Sally there. We live in South Africa. We've been there for the last nine years. 21 years ago, we launched what we call All Nations. Uh, for quite a few years, All Nations was a part of Youth with a Mission, and then YWAM launched us out, <clears throat> and now we are planting churches, making disciples, and training leaders all over the world in 32 countries at the last count. Sally and I moved to South Africa to start a training center there and to plant churches. And uh, we live right in Cape Town on the kind of tip of Africa. So if you go right down to the bottom, that's where we are. We live right by the coast. And uh, we live in a very beautiful city. Cape Town is a city of about 5 million people. I would say half the people live in shacks. Many of the people live in mansions. We have pain and we have beauty. We have wealth and we have poverty. We live right by the coast, so we have... The big waves come in. We have the big wave tournaments that take place there. So surfers come from all over the world. And we feel like we've been riding a big wave. When Sally and I got there, it was like, like a tsunami hit, a Holy Spirit tsunami. And we just held on and God started blessing and pouring out his spirit. And we're so excited about being a part of what God's doing. We have launched out people into 13 different countries since we've been there in the last nine years. Uh, some of them are planting churches like crazy and seeing God do all kinds of miracles. We've sent workers into the Middle East, into India, Indonesia. Our main focus is Africa and the Middle East. 
So in the last few years, we've been concentrating on the Syrian refugees. You probably have followed the situation. Of course, there's a terrible war going on in Syria and Iraq. About half of the population of Syria, 7 million people or more, have been displaced from their homes. Several million people have been chased out of their homes and to come out as refugees. And they're in places like uh, Jordan and Lebanon and Turkey, Turkey. And we get to work with those refugees. I have traveled the world for the last 48 years. I've been in many Muslim countries and I've never seen such spiritual openness and hunger as I'm seeing amongst Muslims, Syrian refugees right today. God didn't cause the problems in Syria, but God knows how to use problems that other people cause. Amen. And he is taking those problems and turning them into blessings in people's lives. So literally thousands and thousands of Syrians are coming to faith in Jesus. I've had the privilege of sitting in the homes of Syrian refugees. I've been there three times in the last uh, year and a half, and it's incredible. I met one family, for an example, and they, this guy was working for Assad, who is the dictator of Syria, and he began to just get sickened with all the murders that he was asked to do. So he fled. He knew that if he stopped and he refused to obey orders, They'd kill him and his family, so he fled in the middle of the night. He fled to the Jordanian border. He went through the desert. He got robbed by thieves. He stopped at the border. They wouldn't let him into the country. Jordan's already taken in about 700,000 refugees from Syria. And then a guard had favor on them and let them in. So we sat in his home in a little, a little room. All they had for their family was a room. And he told me how some people with our team had told him about Jesus. And then he had a dream. And he didn't begin to tell me how that Jesus was the one that he was searching for. And he, at the risk of his life, began to tell other fundamentalist Muslims about Jesus. And you know, some of his family members were coming to faith. And here was a guy who was radically committed to hate and murder and now he was, it was like the song we were singing, Jesus Makes Me Brave. He was radically committed to spreading the good news of Jesus. It's really awesome. Uh, Sally and I, uh, yeah, we're very excited about what God's doing, not only in Cape Town, but uh, All Nations has training centers also in Kansas City, where we pastored for a number of years. And we have another training center in Taiwan. So if you're interested in missions or you're interested in outreach, or you'd like some training. We have training courses everywhere from three weeks up to 11 months. So we'd love to share with you more. We have short-term outreaches. We take teams out to the Middle East and to other countries. So we'd love to share with you. We have a, a nine-month discipleship program we call the Green Room. So if you know of a young person between the ages of 18 and 25, we have some awesome leaders who are pouring their lives in and discipling young people as well. So you can get information about that back at the back as well. Uh, I thought my wife has gone through a hard time. She went through cancer last year and praise God, God's brought her through that. I feel like the Lord really did some miracles for her. She's got a really great prognosis. The doctors have said she's all clear. All the tests have been done. And Sally said she'd prefer to greet you on a video tonight. So we've got a little three minute video that we'd like to pray for you at this time. Hi. My name is Sally. I'm Floyd's wife, and we're really happy to be here with you this weekend. In the last year, I've gone through some unusual times in my life, an extended time of illness, 
And I had a story told to me that was very encouraging that I thought I would share with you this morning. In the early 1900s, some South African ladies were sitting in a concentration camp. They were tired, they were hungry, they were discouraged, and they began to pray and ask the Lord to meet their needs. As they were praying, one of the ladies opened her Bible and looked at the verse in Matthew that talks about how much value we have before the Lord and how we're, we're more valuable than the sparrows that fly through the air. She shared this with the ladies, and as they continued to pray, a little sparrow came and sat on her shoulder. They're called mossies in South Africa. The ladies were so encouraged, and they had hope build in their hearts afresh. A few months later, the war came to an end, and one of these ladies went to the president of the country and asked if the sparrow couldn't be reflected on one of the coins in the country because this had been such a meaningful experience to them. They did that, and for about 70, 80 years, there was a, a coin that had some of the sparrows on. I've got one of those coins with me on a bookmark. I don't know if you can see it real well in this video or not. In the years to come, as parents sent their young men off to fight in World War II, they would give their, their sons one of the coins to remind them that God was watching out for them, that he cared for them, and that they were more valuable than the birds of the air. And then even years later, one of these ladies came to the U.S. to help with the rehabilitation of some of our soldiers after the Vietnam War. And she took with her a supply of these coins with the sparrows to give to the young men to remind them that God was aware of their injuries, that he cared about them, and that they were of great value to him. This story was so encouraging to me as I went through a hard time. God reminded me of my value before him. So we've made up some of these coins in a bookmark that tells the story. We brought them with, uh, with us to sell and to remind you of God's love for you, his faithfulness, and of your value. You are more valuable than the sparrows. Bless you. Great. So if you'd like to... Uh, see Sally and we go in the back. You can at the table and she has some earrings she made up and some of those bookmarks that have those little coins on them. How unusual. It's the only country in the world that actually put a scripture verse on a coin. I know we have in God we trust on our currency, but you can go back and you can see that. We also have some um, jewelry that some people have made. We run a safe house for trafficked women, women who've been refugees come out of a Muslim background and we've rescued some of those ladies and we run a safe house to protect them and we give them a skill and they make jewelry. So if you'd like to see the jewelry they make, that's back in the back. A jewelry, piece of jewelry for $15 is a day's wage uh, for a lady. So it helps support the ladies if you'd like to go back. And then I've also brought some books that I've written. Um, if my English ski teachers from school knew that I was writing books, 
there would be another resurrection that would take place, I think. <laughs> uh, I didn't consider myself a good writer, but you know, when God puts a burden on your heart and you want to communicate it to somebody, that's what I've done. I've put things on paper and then thank God for editors who kind of cleaned it up a little bit. Uh, Father Heart of God is now in 40-some languages. We have a study guide with it. And it's about the love of God. We all long to have a father. We all long to know that our father loves us and cares for us. And that's the message of this book, The Father Heart of God. And uh, I've got my brand new book. Uh, it's called Leading Like Jesus. I believe that if you serve people, you can have influence in their life. And if they receive that influence through your serving, then you have authority in their life. So leadership is serving. Serving gives us influence. Influence gives us authority. So this is 40 devotionals from the Gospel of John. I call it leadership lessons from the upside down kingdom about leading, influencing, and serving people. Kind of a handbook for practical leadership for moms, coaches, teachers, pastors, business people. Uh, Sally and I wrote a book together called Living on the Devil's Doorstep. This is our experiences in Afghanistan and Amsterdam. I should tell you one of the stories in the book. Uh, we ran a halfway house in Afghanistan. We took in backpackers into our home and they would get stuck or get arrested or get sick. Afghanistan is not a place you want to get sick. We went to the prisons. We took young people into our home. And one of the young guys we took into our home, he was a Belgian. His name was Chris. And Chris wouldn't really cooperate. He wouldn't respond very well. So we had to ask him to leave. When Chris left, he stole some things from Sally and I, broke into our room, took a lot of our stuff. And one of the things he took was a picture of my wife, Sally. And Sally had blonde hair at the time. Her hair's changed colors now. It fell out during her chemo and came back, different color. But Sally's been a blonde most of her life. He took this picture of my blonde-haired Texan wife, took it to an Afghan man in an Afghan marketplace and convinced him that Sally was his white slave. And then he bargained and he sold Sally. He got some money in exchange for the picture and our telephone number. So Abdul called the house where we were. Sally happened to pick up the phone. We had a lot of people living in the house. She picked up the phone. And this guy in his broken English was trying to explain how that she now belonged to him. And I came walking by and she said, here, you got to handle this. She put the phone in my hand and I listened to this guy in his broken English and my very limited Farsi. And finally, I just said to him, too late, buddy, I own her. <laughs> So Sally's standing there listening to this conversation. And when I put the phone down, she looked at me and she said, well, and I said, what do you mean? Well, well, she said, how much did he pay for me? <laughs> so if you want to hear the rest, how much he paid, you can read the book. <laughs> now, this is stories from uh, Afghanistan and Amsterdam. Uh, the Afghan people have a legend that when Satan fell out of heaven, he fell in Kabul, Afghanistan, where we worked. So we lived on the devil's doorstep. And then when Sally and I moved into Amsterdam, we spent 18 years there and we lived next door to a Satanist church. And we saw scores of churches planted, literally thousands of people come to Christ. But I want to tell you, it was spiritual warfare for at least eight years when we were starting out. And so we tell the stories of the victories that God gave in our work there. And then lastly, I have a book called You See Bones, I See an Army. Ezekiel chapter 37, seeing how Jesus sees, seeing how God sees. And we have a prayer card. And if you want more information, there's a sign-up list there as well. We'd love to put you on our mailing list if you would like to have that. I'd like to share with you about 
Jesus and his invitations to us. Jesus gives lots of beautiful invitations. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, he says at one place. If you're thirsty, come to me. Out of my belly flows rivers of living water. I love that Jesus gives us invitations. His part is that he offers us life. He offers what he's reaching out to us with. Our part is to receive. And Jesus says, freely, freely I've received. Freely, he says, you've received. Freely give. Our part then is to open our hands and let go of anything that would hinder us from receiving from Jesus. One of the things that Jesus has come to give us is he's come to give us joy, the gift of joy. I live in Africa. Uh, there's a kind of a conundrum, if you can say it that way, a huge kind of contradiction in Africa. Uh, Africa is a place where the church is fastest growing in the whole world. Uh, over 35,000 people a day make commitments to Christ in Africa. Africans have some beautiful parts and beautiful aspects of their character. If we generalize a little bit, there's tremendous joy in Africans by nature. Um, Africans love to celebrate. There's nothing like African music, if you know what I'm talking about. After living in Africa for a while, I've decided I'm going to live and I'm going to camp out in the African section in heaven because Africans know how to dance. And this white boy needs some help from the African section. Africans know how to sacrifice. If you are wandering around and lost and you end up in an African neighborhood or village, people are so generous. Hospitality and family is just a part of the way of life. Africans are in touch with the spiritual world. As materialists, those of us in the West, and most of those people who don't know Jesus wouldn't really believe in the realm of the spiritual world, of the demonic, of angels, of spiritual powers. But Africans know about that. And they live under curses and they are often harassed by demons. But sadly, in the continent in the world where the church is growing the fastest and where there's all this beauty that you can find in Africa, there's some also some tremendous problems. Africa has more wars than the other part of the world. There's 55 countries, 1.2 billion people. There's something like 936 different languages spoken in the continent of Africa. But here where the gospel is growing, you can find African evangelists standing on street corners all over Africa. But we find more wars, more AIDS, more preventable diseases, and more corruption amongst African leaders than any other part of the planet. Here's what one friend said to me years ago. I visited Africa for the first time in 1970. I've traveled in most of the 55 countries in Africa. Here's what one friend, he said, Floyd, Africa has been over-evangelized and under-discipled. So the greatest enemy in Africa to Jesus is leaders who are corrupt inside the church and outside the church. And can I say it this way, religion. So we have three religious systems in Africa. We have animism, the worship of spirits. We have, can I call it Christianism? And then we have Islamism. We have Islam and we have Christianity. Not primarily the heart and the truth of Christianity, but a religious system. Africans live under law. 
One African pastor said to me, I was speaking, teaching in, in Kenya many years ago in a Youth with a Mission leadership program. I was speaking on grace. He said, Floyd, this was a Malawian brother. He said, I have grown up under colonial law. I grew up under tribal law. We had family law. And he grew up, he said, I grew up under Christian law. I don't understand what you're saying when you talk about grace. I need something to happen that I can understand what you're saying. And here's the good news. Jesus has come to set people free. Can I say he's come? Our particular passion is Africa and the Middle East. He has come to set Africans free from religion, even Christianity, so that they can find Jesus. <laughs> it's not hard for an African to make a spiritual decision. Uh, we have to be careful. If we preach, Africans will flock forward. But when we leave town, if we preach the gospel, if there's miracles and signs and wonders, if there's not discipleship, if churches are not planted and people are not, not grounded in Christ, what will happen is when the evangelists leave, then they look to somebody else who has power. And if the pastors don't have power, they go to the witch doctors because their worldview is power. Who's got the power? But I want to say it's not enough to have power. Paul said to the Corinthians, I preach nothing else but Christ. And on this foundation, you have been built. So we've realized we not only need the power of the Spirit, but we need to disciple people into a foundation of Jesus Christ. So I want to read a story from John's Gospel. John's Gospel is a gospel about signs. If, um, by the way, have you ever been on a treasure hunt, maybe as a child? We did some, some fun amongst our leaders in our church family in Cape Town. Uh, a couple months ago, we had a treasure hunt. How many of you ever went on a treasure hunt when you were a kid or maybe when you're an adult? So here we had all of our adult leaders from different countries, black and white mixed together, and we went on a treasure hunt. One of the things we had to do is we had to find a chicken foot. It had to be grilled. You had to eat it, and somebody had to take a cell phone picture of you eating a chicken foot. I won that part of it. I ate the chicken foot. They're not bad. They're not good, but they're not bad. <laughs> let's, not, let's say there's not the most meat in a chicken on its foot. <laughs> so we went on a treasure hunt. You know, John's gospel is like a treasure hunt. And John uses the word signs. So I want to read the passage to you tonight from John chapter 2, where John says Jesus did the first sign. So if you want to go on a treasure hunt, you want to do something fun, go home and read through John's gospel. And what he's doing is he's like giving signs to point us to something really beautiful. I won't tell you all the clues and all the signs. We don't have time for that tonight. But let's read about the first sign and the significance of it in John chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. I'll just read it and you can follow along. John chapter 2. first 11 verses. On the third day, and by the way, why do you suppose John says the third day? Let's kind of keep that in mind. Nothing is by accident in John's gospel. He lived 30 years longer than any of the other disciples. And John had time to really think through all the things that Jesus had taught. And John's trying to unfold this now. 
to those who are reading his gospel. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Uh, when I lived in Afghanistan, I discovered Asian Middle Eastern weddings. And they don't go on for hours. They go on for days and days and days. That's the kind of wedding we're talking about here. Whole villages would come. It was the uniting of clans and families. It was a big, big deal. And Jesus, probably because he might have been related, it might have been a distant relative, because it's the families who came together and the villages came together. So it says in verse 3, And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now what this meant was tremendous embarrassment and shame for the family. It meant they were not going to have enough to give to all their families, all the friends who were coming. And if they didn't have enough, if a family invited everybody and they couldn't provide for everybody, tremendous embarrassment. Verse 4, Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? It sounds kind of rude. I don't know if your mother still comes to you. My mother passed away last year. My mom was 93 when she passed away. Whenever I'd go to see her, she was still trying to organize things for the family. <laughs> and especially if there was something good that she knew she could come out of the family, she was trying to put things together. Jesus' mother believes in Jesus. And she's trying to make something happen here. Jesus says, oh, wait a minute. And this is what he says. Now, this is very important. My hour has not yet come. If you've read through John's gospel, you've noticed that John says this, that, that Jesus says over and over again. It's not yet my hour. My hour has not yet come. It's not yet time. What's he speaking of? He's speaking of the cross. He's speaking of that great event when he takes the sins of the worlds and he breaks the power of sin and he introduces freedom into the whole world. And he talks that about, about his being his hour. In verse 5, he's still believing, still hoping. It says, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of the purification of Jews. In other words, these are ceremonial, huge stone jars that are using, used for cleansing ceremonies for the Jews. They had strict um, regulations about how the water had to be poured out of the jars, how you had to hold your hands. Everything was done in a very strict way. And these jars could only be used for those very special sacred ceremonies. What is Jesus doing? He's taking these pots that are used for something that's very important and very sacred for the Jewish people in their religion. And he's using them for a wedding and he's filling them with water and he's going to turn them into wine. What's going on? What do you think Jesus is doing here when he takes that which is used as a ceremony and that you had to go through all the right steps to be acceptable? Jesus takes that and he fills it with something new. Do you see what's happening? You get the feel here, the picture of it. Uh, we pick it up in verse 7. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. 
And he said to them, draw some of it out now and take it to the master of the feast. When the master, this is the kind of the master of ceremonies, the MC for the whole event. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior comes. You have kept the good wine until now, until last. In other words, when everybody gets drunk and they can't tell any difference, then they bring out the junk. He said, you haven't done it that way. You have saved some of the best wine for last. This beginning of signs, Jesus did in Cain of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. There you see that word signs. He manifested his glory. You know what Africa needs? You know what America needs? We need old religious systems. We need old ways of doing things to be filled with something brand new and that's alive. Jesus broke into a ceremony where there was gonna be certain shame and there was going to be guilt as a result of it. And there was going to be a heavy spirit that was going to descend on the affair. And Jesus shows up and he surprises everybody. He brings joy. You know, when I think about joy, I don't think about an emotion of happiness. Joy is deeper than happiness. Happiness is dependent on your personality or it's dependent on your circumstances or it's dependent on the late night comedians. <laughs> But joy is different than happiness. And Jesus has come to offer something that is fulfilling the longing of every human heart. Every religion, every desire of every human being, Jesus says, I want to fulfill them all. We find that Jesus is fulfilling the longings of Muslims. Uh, by the way, did you know that Jesus is mentioned in the Quran 86 times? <laughs> So when we start off with Muslims, we'll say, hey, what does it say about Jesus? Let's go to the second surah of the Quran. And it says that he is born of a virgin. It says that he lived a sinless life. And it says that he's coming back. They actually, it says in the Quran. Now, I don't believe the Quran is true or anointed, but I believe they stumbled on some true things. And then we say, hey, let's read that. Because if they believe that he's great and that he's good, and they read the stories of Jesus then in the Gospels and something stirs in their heart and they pursue that stirring, it's going to lead to the fulfillment of everything they're longing for. Everything you've longed for will not be found in religion. It will not be found in you doing things the right way. I grew up in a church uh, where we had 83 pages of rules. My dad was the pastor. I won't tell you the denomination, but oh my gosh, if it was fun, we had a rule against it. Seriously. I couldn't play sports in high school. Well, I eventually did, but it was against the rules because guys, not girls, guys could not let their legs be showing well, I guess they knew what was going to happen if girls saw these legs, right? 
Serious temptation. I mean, it was like so heavy. If, we, if, there was, if there was something fun in life, we had a rule against it. I remember the first time I was on a YWAM outreach down in Mexico. Sally and I were newly married. I was waiting for a team to show up in Mexico City, and I wandered into a theater. I was 21 years of age. I'd never been into a movie theater in my whole life because that's where the devil was. It was such a disappointing experience. It was like a John Wayne movie. I was expecting violence, drugs, alcohol, and sex all around me. And it was just like a show. I thought all this guilt and all these rules and all these sermons against that, and that's what it's all about. (laughs) Jesus came into the midst of a religious system. And he said, I have come to fulfill this. Jesus is the one that every human heart is looking for. Jesus is what you and I are looking for. Jesus has come to surprise us with joy. Uh, When my wife was going through chemo last year, she began to write devotionals. And if you would like to get them, they're just awesome. Uh, You can talk to Sally or put your name in our mailing list and we'll be happy to send them to you. Sally has this view in life. She has a beautiful attitude toward Jesus. She believes that Jesus compensates, that whatever we go through in life that is tough, whatever difficulty, whatever circumstance that can be really hard, that if we look for it, we will find Jesus bringing something to compensate and to balance it out and to bring something beautiful. So my wife went through all through her cancer chemo days looking for joy and looking for beauty. And she found it in a little coin with two little sparrows on it. She found it in all kinds of ways. Sally's going to write a book. I'm not sure that anybody will publish it with this title. It's called Cancer and Joy. (laughs) I believe that joy is not just a choice. It's not something we deserve. It's not something we have to earn. That Jesus shows up at the least expected time and he surprises us with joy. We don't have to earn joy. He died to earn it for us. (laughs) He died to break the the depression of our spirits. He died to break sadness and hopelessness. He died to dispel the lies of the enemy that come into our lives. And he died to come and show us that he is the source of joy. I don't know about you, but I often find in my hardest moments that I turn to Jesus and I say, by faith, I receive, because this is our promise, The fruit of the Spirit is joy and peace and love. And I say to the Lord, I receive joy. Please, I really need you to invade my heart and my life with it right now. This is what we're doing. If I could say it this way, we're spreading joy in Africa. I want to tell you about a young lady named Vovo. Uh, Vovo was dying of AIDS. And we work in some of the poor townships in Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, There's one community called Masapumalele. For short, we call it Masi because we, some of our people can't say the long, the long version. So we work in Masi, 35,000 shack homes, people living in terrible poverty. There was Vovo living in the very back in the wetlands and in the winter months, which it is right now when the rain would come, she would often have six inches, 12 inches of rain and flood water in her little shack home. We had a team that was visiting us, an outreach team. 
And it was raining every day for three weeks that the team was there. They kept going out. They were doing the treasure hunting thing. And they were looking. One day they found Vovo. And they prayed for her. And Vovo told them her story. And you know, they went back every day, every day. Vovo came to faith in Jesus. She was so amazed that she didn't have to do something. (laughs) Because religion in Africa is about what you have to do. You have to wear nice clothes. You have to dress up. You You can't confess sin. You can't say that there's anything wrong in your life. And Vovo was blown away by this. And I want to tell you, she became such an amazing woman. I would see her just walking around with a smile on her face. I'd say, Vova, what is it? She would say, call me um, uh, uh, father, <laughs> Papa. I'd say, Papa Floyd, I know Jesus. Whether I die of AIDS or whether Jesus heals me, I'm going to go to heaven now. And I watch Vovo just grow and grow and grow. Now, we teach what we call discovery discipleship, a really simple discipleship process. So when somebody comes to faith like Vovo, we read the words of Jesus together, and we just ask a simple question. What stands out to you from this story? So we pray. We know the Holy Spirit's there. He's the best teacher. And we believe he's going to speak something to people as we read the word. And they're going to discover something that's going to bring life to them. So Vovo learned this simple process of discovery, reading things to her friends from the word. She would ask them the question, what stands out to you? In other words, what's the Holy Spirit saying? And what we say to our disciples is, if you'll just take that one thing and you'll put it into practice. Now, how many of you know That information doesn't change your life. Obedience changes your life. (laughs) See, I mean, if information changed our life, then I imagine we have probably hundreds of thousands of hours of sermons just here in Colorado every year. It's not information. It's what we do with that information. So if we obey, then God gives more. So remember now, Jesus said, Mary said to the servants, whatever Jesus says to you, do that. (laughs) So one day, Vovo came to me and she said, Papa Floyd, some of the pastors came to me in Masapumalele and said, I should not be leading Bible studies. I said, why, Vovo? They said, well, I was a woman, and a woman shouldn't be teaching people, especially men. I said, well, what did you say? I thought, oh, dear. Simple girl, never finished high school, And here she's leading these Bible studies, and these guys came in their suits and their ties. Remember I said some of the biggest problems in Africa are religion and corrupt leaders? These guys were threatened by Vovo, and they were having a go at her. I said, well, what did you say? And she said, well, I thought and I thought, and then I thought. I said to them, all I do is I do what the mother of Jesus did. She said, I just tell them I read the words of Jesus and then I say, just do whatever Jesus says. And then she said, Papa Floyd, one of the pastors said to the other pastor, see, I told you she had just quote the Bible to us. (laughs) And then a couple days later, one of those pastors came back to her secretly like Nicodemus at night and said, will you teach me how to do that Bible study thing, that discovery thing? (laughs) 
Vovo has started countless discovery Bible studies. It's like the first step for hungry hearts. And then it grows. And many of those discovery Bible studies have been planted as churches. And Vovo's amazing. And her dream now is to go back to her home part of South Africa, the Eastern Cape. She lives in the Western Cape and plant more churches and tell more people about Jesus. I'll tell you about one other couple and then we'll stop. Uh, So there was a young couple. We have lots of economic refugees. South Africa is to Africa what America is to many parts of the world. People come to South Africa because it's the most prosperous country in Africa. They come for jobs. They come to escape joblessness and poverty and hopelessness. So we have people coming from almost every country in Africa. We have, we have 18,000 Somalians living in Cape Town. We have people coming from Mozambique and Zimbabwe and Zambia and the DRC, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So there was a Malawian couple from the country of Malawi, Rhoda and Oliver. Rhoda came to faith. She met one of our ladies. Um, she um, discipled her. Kaylin is her name. Kaylin poured Jesus into to Rhoda's heart. And Rhoda just became an on-fire evangelist. Now, the problem was Rhoda's husband, Oliver, was a chief. And he's very tall and he's very dignified. And he couldn't stand the fact that his wife had all this enthusiasm. And he was constantly trying to kind of hold her down. Well, finally, after a couple years, Oliver had a breakthrough and he came to faith in Jesus and we discipled him together. Now, one of our beliefs is that Jesus allows a lot of these people to come from all over Africa so that we can disciple them, lead them to faith, build foundations in their life, and then send them back all over Africa. And that's one of our main strategies. So Rhoda and Oliver went back. Now Oliver still, I would call him like a pastor teacher. He's just kind of very calm, peaceful, very dignified. And Rhoda's running around fluttering all over the place, just enthusiastically spreading joy. And she has a gift of faith for miracles. And we said to them, would you please go to the Yao people? Now the Yao people are an unreached people group. They're, they're hard, really strict Muslims. I wouldn't call them fanatical on the war kind of terrorist kind, but they're very strict. And we said, would you pray? Would you go to the Yao people? It's a people group in their country. And they said, yes. So they sacrificed going back to their home, went to the Yao people. And they started praying for people with AIDS. Soon the hospitals were sending for them to come and pray for sick people in the hospital. They were going to the mosque and praying for people. They were going to shops. Now we've started, Oliver and Rhoda have started 60 churches. Every church has been born out of a miracle, out of a sign. Muslims are being baptized and a movement has begun. You know what I dream about? I dream about this for my life in Africa. I dream about it for all nations. Our dream is Acts chapter 2, out of human control, Holy Spirit movements where churches are being born and reproduced like we read about in the book of Acts. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to turn 70 this year. I'm wanting to see movements. Well, my dream for Africa is to see a thousand movements. And my dream is that I'll see a hundred fathers raised up, African men who will go and start those movements. And I'll get to go and flutter around them and say, boy, keep going. And, hey, watch out for this and go this way. Discipling, building foundations under those who have been invaded by joy. Amen. Amen. 
Do you want joy in your life? You don't have to earn it. I want to say that to you tonight. You don't have to do all kinds of religious things. If there's a kind of a lingering shame in your life over something you've blown in the past, I want to say to you, Jesus wants to give you joy that will break that shame off of your life. If you've carried a kind of second-class Christian feeling, like you're not really one of the spiritual elite or dedicated or full-time people, I want to say to you, Jesus wants to dispel that tonight. He just wants to kind of show up unexpected in your life like he did at the wedding. And he says, no, I want to bless you with this. If you've lost something of your passion that you had when you started off with Jesus, I just have faith tonight. Not from me. I just believe Jesus loves to show up. Would you love Jesus to do that for you tonight? I'm going to ask uh, somebody to come. <laughs> and I'd like us to pray together. Let me pray with you. And then I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond tonight. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you show up at the most unexpected times in our life. I want to thank you that you come when we cry out and we don't even know, Lord, in our lives in the past that we were crying for you. I want to thank you, Lord, that you come to lift religious and religiosity off of us and that you come, Lord, to fill our hearts with joy. Lord, I want to thank you tonight that you've come to lift shame and guilt and fear. And as we sang tonight, you've come to give us courage. You've come to make us brave men and women. I ask you to come now, Jesus, by Holy Spirit, and touch every heart here who fears or despairs or has lost passion or the vision has died out or they've been caught up in things around them in this American culture that we live in that's so fast and so pressured. Come, we pray right now. Holy Spirit. If you want him and you need him, would you stand right where you are and you just say, Floyd, you're saying, really, Jesus, this is my acknowledgement that there's something missing in my life and I need you to stand where you are, would you please? And you can just say, you know what? I'm carrying a habit in my life and I haven't been able to break it. I've been struggling with a cloud of depression. Drugs haven't freed me. Counselors haven't freed me. If you're struggling in your marriage or in your work, I believe tonight that Jesus will come to you. Will you just stand your humble way of saying, I really need you, Jesus. If you've never actually turned your life over to Jesus? You've never trusted him to be in charge of your life? I want to invite you to do that tonight. He's not against you. He actually wants to make your heart come alive. He wants to make you fully human and fully alive. Just join us where we are. Lord Jesus, you see my friends, my brothers and sisters standing tonight. 
in humility and honestly just saying, I need you, Jesus. And would you come to them now, I pray. I pray, Lord, you're gonna surprise them in the next 24 hours. Things that have been such heavy burdens, things that have been so hard, things that they thought were impossible. I pray, Lord, you'll begin to unwind those by the beauty of your presence. Turn water into wine, I pray, and fill empty pots in our hearts. We say we love you and we trust you. Jesus, everybody stand with us together. Would you say these words with me? This is simple word, Jesus. Just say it out loud with me, would you? Jesus, dear Jesus. Let's all just put our hands up. We say, Lord Jesus, we need you. We want you and we thank you in your name. And everybody said, amen, amen. God bless, God bless. We're going to ask the ministry teams to come forward. They're here to pray with you in any area you'd like prayer for. Uh, you can stop by. I don't know. Are you going to? Yeah, for, uh, Floyd will be out at the at the, the table back there. Anyway, God bless you. I love you. He loves you. You know what? Let's make a difference this week. God bless you. Have a great week.